0: Creflo Dollar is the name of a man who leads a church in the USA. Creflo Dollar is an interesting name. And it might seem a rather suitable name because he's into dollars. He's got a lot of them. He's got enough to buy a private jet, two Rolls Royces, and a couple of multi-million dollar mansions in various parts of the USA. And he teaches that that's just what God intends. God intends his people to be healthy and wealthy. God's given them this, as God intends to for his children. I did notice when I clicked on his website, the first thing that came up was an appeal for funds, and the second thing that I found out was he's under investigation from the financial authority. So there we are. I'm, I'm, I shouldn't have said that because I've given away the answer to a later question. Well, here comes the question. What do you think then? What do you think of that? God intends his people to be healthy and wealthy. Do you believe Creflo Dollar? Or, when you have troubles, do you have zero expectation of God to do anything? Now, you can laugh at Creflo Dollar, but you, instead, you just have zero expectation of God. I've got troubles, but I don't expect God to do anything about them. Don't really expect his intervention in your life. Or are you somewhere between the two? What can you expect from God? Let's get the answer from Psalm 34 to that question that we all face at times. What can you expect from God? Let's turn back to Psalm 34. There's page numbers in English and Chinese and notes for where we're going on your green sheets. Psalm 34, wonderful, rich psalm. The way we're going to do this is, first of all, going, then getting, then giving. Going, then getting, then giving. Going through the psalm, just briefly. uh, I'm going to miss out most of it, actually, but I just want you to see the structure. Then getting from the psalm to us. How does it relate to us? And then giving, giving us right expectations. The one lesson I want us to take home is, well, what can we expect from God? So first of all, going through the psalm, the context in what Tim calls verse zero. It says, "Do you see there, of David, when he pretended to be insane before Abimelech, who drove him away and he left. Those headings are original in the psalms. And this one tells us this psalm was written by David after an unusual experience. He was on the run. This is before he became king. And the king at the time, Saul, was trying to get him. And David was so desperate and his life looked in such danger that he went to the enemy, the Philistines, to try and hide among them. But hit a big problem. They recognized him. And they said to their king, Oh, by the way, if you get a bit worried about why does it say it's King Abimelech and when you read the history it says it's King Achish? Well, it's a bit like you know, our late queen's father, what was his name? Well, you might say George, but it wasn't. It was Bertie, wasn't it? But you see, those kings took the name George, even though the name was Bertie. The kings back then took the name Abimelech, but this one's name was Akish. Kings do that sort of thing. I just say that in case you get worried and think, oh, is the Bible accurate? Yes, it is very accurate. Well, anyway, this king said, had people say to him, isn't that man David? Isn't he the one who killed our champion, Goliath? And David was stuck. There he was, and they'd spotted him. And so what did he do? He pretended to be mad. He scribbled and he dribbled. He scribbled nonsense on the walls, and he dribbled down his beard. Until King Abimelech said, haven't I got enough madmen round here? A bit of an insult to his courts. Send him away. And David was safe for a while. And so he wrote this psalm. And he wrote this psalm where he tells us, first of all, rejoice with me. This is verses 1 to 10. He tells us, rejoice with me. His theme, now this is really obvious, but it's worth noting. It's really obvious, but take notice of it. His theme is not, how impressive my acting skills and cunning my plan. I've got away. His theme is, God delivered me. We might question his methods. I wonder if David questioned his methods, given the middle of the psalm talks about making sure you speak the truth. But despite that, he sees God delivered me. And so he says, because God delivered me, I invite you to thankfulness. This is verses one to three. I invite you to join in my thankfulness. He says, I'm going to tell you what God has done for me. I've got reason to praise him. Please join in. That's what verses 1 to 3 are saying. Are you like that? I know some people here are because I hear it in my home group. I hear people saying, I prayed for this. God did that. Let's give thanks. That's great. More of us. It would be good if more of us were like that, wouldn't it? If more of us were, well, are you noticing answers to prayer? I hear the children this morning before church were told an old rhyme. Count your blessings, name them one by one, it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Do you know that rhyme? Have you done it? I reckon quite a lot of Christians know that rhyme. and Very rarely do we do it. I once sat down to note down answers to prayer. Because a sceptical friend of mine said to me, these Christians talk about answers to prayer. They don't really happen, do they? I got a bit worried. I thought, let's write a list. It did surprise me what the Lord has done. And then do you invite others to join in your thankfulness? Home group would be a good time to do that. David says, rejoice with me. I invite you to thankfulness. And then I invite you to trust. This is verses four to seven. Verses 4 to 7, I invite you to trust. Do you see what he's doing? Have a look at these verses. What he's doing is pretty straightforward. Verse 4, he says, look what God has done for me. Verses 5 to 7, he says, you can expect him to do that for you too. Do you see the pattern? Verse 4, it's me. I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. And then it goes into those and they. Because he's saying, this isn't just me, here's a pattern for how God works. You can trust him to do similar for yourself. Imagine a charity food bank. And you hear that many people are being given food. And you're in need too. And you think you'll go and get some. But what's the worry you have? Well, will they have any left for you? If lots of other people are getting it, will they have any left for you? I love it that with God that's never a worry. Do you ever think of this? Other people's answers to prayer or your previous answers to prayer don't mean you need to worry God might have run out or your quota might have been used up. No, instead, other people's answers to prayer and your past answers to prayer are always reasons to trust God for more. Let's have another old rhyme. How good is the God we adore, our faithful, unchangeable friend, and then it ends, we'll... What is it? We'll praise him for all that is past and trust him for all that's to come. And that's just what David is saying here. Look at my past and join in with praising God and trusting him for what's to come. But he says more. He said, I invite you to thankfulness. I invite you to join in with my trust and I invite you to taste. Verses 8 to 10. I invite you to taste. I wonder if you watch MasterChef. I don't like it. I find it quite annoying. But I have seen it a couple of times. If you don't know, it's a TV program where chefs compete. And Greg Wallace is one of the judges. And he describes what they've cooked in enthusiastic tones, trying to get you to have an idea of what the food is like. He says, these are quotes, that's, uh, that's like a chocolate tide crashing onto a beach. That's just an Aladdin's cave of pudding delights. Or or things like the refreshing uh, tang of that lemon combined with the the mellow taste of, I don't know, what tastes mellow? I I couldn't be a Greg Wallace. I haven't got, he's got this way with words. But whatever his words, you can't really know what that food is like until what? You taste it for yourself. David's got a way with words. Oh, what good words he's had, verses 1 to 7. But here in verse 8, he's saying, you can't just take it from me. I can't even describe this to you. You've got to taste it for yourself. Can you imagine this? You've got to taste God for yourself. Taste God for yourself. Discover his goodness for yourself. Get to know him for yourself. Cry out to him for yourself. Bring your troubles to him for yourself. You can't tell it just by listening to David's words. It almost sounds heretical, as they're the words of the Bible. And you can trust them. But you have also got to taste God for yourself. Don't just hear from others about his goodness. Discover him for yourself. I said I'm only going through very briefly to give you just the structure. There's the first half. Verses 1 to 10 is rejoice with me. Verses 11 to 22 is learn from me. Now, I'd love to take you through these verses. There's so much to help you here, but I'm just going to point out. Now, David says in verse 11, learn from me. Verse 11, come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. The tone changes. It becomes very much like Proverbs. It's just like Proverbs. David's theme here is, fear God because everything is in his hands. It's not in your hands. It's not in the hands of the people who cause you trouble. Do you have them at school, at university, at work, maybe even neighbours or maybe family even? Think of David. He, he looked like he was in the hands of people who caused him trouble. No, he says, no. It's not in, it's, it's not just circumstances and events either. It's all in God's hands. That is the theme of verse 15 onwards. It's all in God's hands. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are attentive to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. And the rest of the psalm is more on that subject. It's more on that subject. The subject is there are people God is watching over. And the picture is, I hope I'm not going to embarrass someone here, but the picture is, Dave and Esther Fox on a Sunday morning watched them after church and they're right, they've got two little toddlers and their eyes are on their toddlers to see where they're going and their ears are open. I saw one of them fall over the other day and the father heard his cry and picked him up. And that's the picture in verse 15. But, verse 16, there are people God is against and he's going to cut them off. Which are you? In case you'd switched off for a while, I will say that again. There are people that God is watching, like a mother watching her toddler. And there are people God is against and he's going to cut them off. Which are you? Well, there's so much in these verses. I I really enjoyed and benefited from going through them. And I prepared quite a bit more on them, but I have had to reluctantly cut it. Because my aim really isn't to go through the psalm. My aim really this evening is is this one thing. What should we expect from God? So I hope I've given you enough to give you a structure of the psalm and even better to get you to go back to it yourself and look through for yourself. Wonderful psalm. But we've got to move from going through the psalm to getting from the psalm to us. Because I want to get across this one thing about expectations. So now, getting from the psalm to us, here's an untrue story I've made up. Matt went to Cornwall on holiday. While he was there, he went out on a fishing trip in a boat into the Atlantic. And while he was in the Atlantic, a storm arose. And uh, it was a fearsome storm. And all the people were getting frightened. But Matt said, it's no problem. Don't worry. Just throw me in the sea. Throw me in the sea and the storm will calm. And God will send a big whale and it will swallow me and two days later I'll be safely sicked up onto New, Kay, New Key Beach. They were rather reluctant to do this, but he said, I've read the story of Jonah. God did it for Jonah and he's put it in the Bible for us to learn from. If he did it for Jonah, why would he put it in the Bible if he didn't intend to do it for us also? Do you agree with Matt's understanding of the Bible? Why not? Psalm 34, David says, look what God did for me. He can do it for you. Why don't you expect whales to swallow you when you're in storms? Do you see my point I'm getting at? How do we get from David in Psalm 34 to us? Because David says, he did it for me. You can expect similar for you. But David was a king thousands of years ago with personal promises from God. How do we get from David to us? First we need a principle. Here's the principle. David in the Psalms nearly always represents Christ. There's the principle. David in the Psalms nearly always represents Christ. The New Testament writers quote the Psalms a lot and they nearly always take David as being a picture of Jesus. It seems to be their default position. David in the Psalms is a picture of Jesus unless we've got reason to think otherwise. Like when David's saying he's committed adultery. Well, that's not Jesus. So we should take Psalm 34 as being about Jesus unless we've got good reason not to. Let's have a look. Does Jesus fit? What about verse 4? I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Does does that fit Jesus? Do you remember the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus feared and he sought the Lord and he was answered. How? Verse 19. There's many examples in this psalm, but I'm just picking one. Verse 19 of how he was answered. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Does Jesus fit that? A righteous man? None more so. And you cannot count how many troubles were poured on him on the cross. That's a, that's a great unknown to us. But he wasn't left in them. His father delivered him from them, raised him up from the grave. Verse 15. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. And so the father watched his child on the cross, and his ears were attentive to him. Even though Jesus was reduced to saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His father was still listening, and he did lift him up out of the grave. He didn't let his body decay. Jesus fits this psalm. And if that wasn't enough, the New Testament quotes this psalm and it tells us it's about Jesus. You see, the religious leaders didn't want dead bodies hanging on crosses on the Sabbath day. This is like the greatest example of religious hypocrisy. We'll get this man killed, but we don't want his body around on the Sabbath day. So they said to the authorities, go and finish them off quickly. And the soldiers went, first criminal. There he is heaving for breath, so let's smash his legs so he can't breathe anymore. Second criminal, heaving for breath, smash his legs so he can't prop himself up and breathe anymore. Man in the middle, Jesus, is dead already. They don't swing their hammers. His bones are not broken. And John chapter 19 says this is because of Psalm 34 verse 20. Psalm 34, verse 20, he protects all his bones, not one of them will be broken. This psalm is about Jesus. There's the principle, the psalm's about Jesus. That gives us a priority, and the priority is a simple one. You need to be in Christ. You need to be in Christ. Because this psalm is all about Him, it's only about, it's only in Him that it applies to us. This psalm is only about you if you are in Christ, because it's about Him. Sometimes I take the funeral of an unbeliever, and I regard that as a great privilege, to take the funeral of anyone made in God's image. But it is difficult. And sometimes unbelieving family members expect me to have some soothing words for them from the Bible. Can I have soothing words for them from the Bible? Well, the Bible is full of comfort and the Bible is full of promises. But I also have to notice this, that it all comes through Jesus. And it's all to those who are in Jesus Christ, who belong to him. Psalm 34 is good news about God. It's really good news. But for it to be true of you, you need to be in Christ, belong to Jesus Christ. So we've had a principle, it's all about him. We've had a priority, you need to be in him. What's that like in practice? That's got to shape what we expect Psalm 34 to be like for us in practice. The New Testament tells us how Psalm 34 is experienced in practice for us. So, for example, the New Testament tells us how verse 22 happens. In Christ, we're not condemned. See verse 22? No one will be condemned who takes refuge in him. And it tells us what it means to be in Christ and not condemned. And the New Testament tells us how in Christ, verse 19 happens. How we're delivered from our troubles. And the New Testament tells us how in Christ verse 5 happens, how even in Christ our faces can be radiant. And, and I reckon possibly the best place to see that is Romans 8. That's why we read Romans 8. It's possibly the best place to see how the New Testament uses these Psalm 34 promises. It's got many parallels with Psalm 34. Now, we haven't got time to turn to it and go through it verse by verse. So please try to follow and see if you can remember Romans 8 as I go through it now. Maybe in your Bible reading this week you could do it. I hope you do read the Bible. I hope you've got a a scheme, a pattern, a way of doing it. But maybe you could break into that this week. Read Romans 8 and look. Where can you see Parallels to Psalm 34 in Romans 8. Here's one. It starts, Romans 8 starts with, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But also, like Psalm 34, Romans 8 is realistic. We get troubles. Verse 19, a righteous man may have many troubles. And Romans 8, did you notice our reading started with, Present sufferings. Troubles. And Romans 8 doesn't say God stops all the troubles. It says God is with you in the troubles so they can't separate you from his love. And then more than that, Romans 8 then says, in fact, all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. It says God is using those troubles for your good. He's using those troubles to work out His purpose, which is to make you like Jesus Christ, His Son, to shape your character. And so it then says in all these troubles, you are more than a conqueror. You don't just get through them. They are turned around into your good. And so it says, as uh, our prayer began with earlier, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not freely with him give us all things? In this life, God will give you all you need. Verse 9, those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may go grow weak and hungry. Children, have you been to, what's the place called in Nottingham? Woolerton Hall. Good place to go. It used to be free. They started charging. That's a blow, isn't it? Because it's a good place to to go on a rainy day and look at. They've got there a stuffed lion. Look at its claws. Look at its teeth. You can get right up close. How powerful it is. Even lions grow weak and hungry when the rains haven't come for a long time. But, verse 10, those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He's given his son. He'll give you all. It doesn't say that you want. It doesn't say two Rolls Royces, a jet, and two multimillion dollar mansions in America. And he'll give you all that is needed for something better, to make you like Christ and to take you to glory, to get you to the goal. And what does Romans 8 say the goal is? Where is he taking us? Glory revealed in you. That's what it says. One day our faces really will be radiant. Our remade faces will be radiant with seeing Christ and being made like him. So Romans 8 is like Psalm 34. Yes, it puts the focus beyond this life in a way you don't see fully in Psalm 34. But it doesn't reduce the good news. It doesn't lower the high expectations Psalm 34 gives us. So, I hope you're following me, because I want to move on now to giving. We've had going through the psalm, I know I missed most of it out, but I wanted to move on to getting from the psalm to us. And I hope I've shown you enough there to move on to giving, giving us right expectations. What can we expect from God? Someone recently told me about a wedding that they'd seen online. And after the bride and groom were married, in the service, the minister prayed for them. What sort of thing would a minister pray for a couple who'd just been married? This minister prayed that couple would be millionaires. And then he specified millionaires in euros. Now, you wouldn't want to be a millionaire in Zimbabwean dollars, would you? I've got in my house a 300 trillion Zimbabwean dollar note. Don't bother breaking in and stealing it. It's, it's, it's not even worth blowing your nose on hardly. So this minister specified, I pray, Lord, that you would make this couple millionaires in euros. What do you think of that? Good prayer, is it? Well, I hope no one thinks that's a good prayer. But our reaction to the foolish, false health and wealth preachers shouldn't be low expectations. Shouldn't be thinking, oh, well, they've got it all wrong, so the Christian life is just one of enduring misery. We're like pendulums, aren't we? And we don't seem to be able to get a stable place. We swing from one to the other. Health and wealth preachers ignore, verse 2, that God's people can be afflicted. And verse 18, that the righteous can be broken hearted and crushed. And verse 19, you may be a righteous person and still have many troubles. But we mustn't ignore the the tone of this psalm. Do you look for the tone of a passage? Someone gave me once some good advice to try to preach Bible doctrines in the Bible's proportions and in the Bible's tone. What is the tone of Psalm 2? Verse two, my soul will boast in the Lord. Yes, you may be afflicted, but let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Because verse four, he delivered me from all my fears. And verse seven, this isn't just me. He delivers those who fear him in general, not just David. And verse nine, those who fear him lack nothing. And verse 10, they lack no good thing. And verse 17, The righteous cry out, and the Lord delivers them from all their troubles. And verse 19, you may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers you from them all. Do you get the tone? Do you get the tone? You see, the trouble with the health and wealth teachers is not too high expectations. The trouble is they're too confident about the how and when of God's good gifts. That's the trouble. Psalm 34 is telling us, have high expectations of God. And then Romans 8 is telling us the focus of those expectations. So I've said about these health and wealth teachers, my aim this evening is not to get at them. I doubt there's any here this evening. My aim is to use them really to get at us, swinging the pendulum the other way. Just having low expectations of God and acting as if he doesn't intervene in our difficulties. Let's get some examples of what this is like. An example from David, who wrote this psalm. God delivered him from the trouble he's writing about. And he was safely taken from his trouble in the land of the Philistines. And what was his life like after that? Do you know David's life? Well, he lived in a cave for a while, while King Saul tried to kill him. He became king, and not everyone wanted him as king. Eventually they did, and he had a family, like God promised him. And what happened? Some of the things in his family are so horrible, I won't mention them here. What his brother, what his son did to his daughter. And then another son went and tried to kill David. Do you think, with hindsight, David would tone down the optimism of Psalm 34? He just got a bit enthusiastic because God had delivered him once, but it's really been misery after that. No way. No way. When David wrote Psalm 34, he never could have imagined what further promises God had in store for him. And even after those promises, how his, his family would rule forever, he could never imagine how great his son would be, Jesus, and how vast his kingdom would be. He never could have imagined how blessed is the person who takes refuge in the Lord. So what about our experiences? I'll pick two examples. What about struggling with illnesses? An ongoing illness. What does Psalm 34 say about that? It says, bring it to God with high expectations. Bring your illness to God with high expectations. He may heal you, or He might not. But instead, use it to make you more like Christ. Or He might make you a. He might not heal you, but use it to make you a shining example to others, like Johnny Erickson. Do you know about her? As a teenager, we've got some teenagers here. She had a diving accident, broke her back could never walk or use her arms again. And God hasn't changed that. She's still alive today and still in that state. What a shining example. How much glory to God and encouragement to others has come from her? He may do that. He will give you a new and illness-free body one day when Jesus returns. So, Bring your illness to God with high expectations, but not dictating to Him the how and the when of His good gifts. I'll pick one more. What about marriage troubles? What do you do if you've got marriage troubles? Christians do, don't they? Many Christians do. Psalm 34 says, bring them to God with high expectations. He may give you a marriage that's an example of joyful unity. He may make you an example of Christ-like sacrificial love in a difficult home. He may, in an ongoing way, use it to make you rely on him with, with such a strong uh, clinging to him. He will, one day, give you the joy of experiencing being perfectly united to Christ forever he will not just ignore your cry or find it too difficult to bring anything good out of it. Do you see what I'm trying to say? In each of these, I'm trying to encourage you, cry to God with high expectations, but not as if you can dictate to God the how and the when of his good gifts. The trouble with the health and wealth... Teachers is not they expect too much from God. The trouble is actually, they think too little of God. They're thinking in terms of their agenda, but his agenda is better than ours. His knowledge sees further than ours, and his plan is more joyful than ours. So we must leave to him the how and the when of his good gifts. But we must bring to him our needs with high expectations and, verse 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the person who takes refuge in him.